publication, very short book, very uh, incredibly short, short in height, very thin, less than 100 pages. Uh, so if you have encountered the prosperity gospel, uh, this would be a good book for you. Another one along the same lines is the one by Costi Hen, uh, Betty Hen's nephew uh, that we have in the library called uh, God, Greed, and the Pros- God, Greed, and the Gospel. Uh, so again, that would be there for you. And the last one for this morning is another short, thin book. This one is by John Owen, uh, a Puritan from uh, a few centuries ago. This one is called Rules for Walking in Fellowship. Uh, So this is a very short, basic book. If you wonder how should the body of Christ act, love, serve one another, uh, this is a good um, intro into it. And being a good Puritan, there is a lot of Bible references in here. There's there's a lot. So um, it's very full of the Bible. But um, again, this is a three-part Three, two-part book. Part one is rules for walking in fellowship with reference to the pastor or minister who watches over your souls. And part two, uh, rules to be observed by those who walk in fellowship to remind them of their mutual duties toward one another. So I would commend that book to you. Um, if you don't want to get it from the library, you can probably buy your copy. I'm sure it's not uh, too much. All right, before we begin our message this morning, let's go to our Father in heaven in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. You know our hearts, and yet you let us live. We thank you that we can gather this morning. Some of us are perhaps here um, after much effort. Perhaps it has taken all that we are, all that we have, just to be here, Father. And we thank you that by your grace that we have been able to come and to gather We thank you that despite how our weary souls may feel, how dejected or disappointed our hearts may be, we thank you that we can come here, hear your word, hear your truth, that we can be encouraged, that we can be reminded of what is first and foremost in eternity, what truly matters, what is reality, what is truth, that we can reset our gaze from our navels to you, and that we can continue to ponder who you are and who we are in light of that truth, Father. Father, so I ask that this morning that you would speak to your servant, that you would speak to those here, that we would all hear your voice, that we would submit ourselves to your teaching, to your instruction, that we wouldn't be distracted, that we wouldn't allow the cares, the worries, the anxieties, the pains, or even the pleasures and delights of this world to distract us, to cause us not to hear, to cause us to be blind. I ask that you would help us not to be arrogant in our thinking, and that we would receive what is true with humble hearts. Father, we ask these things for your glory, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, and by the blood and in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you haven't already, please open up to Hebrews chapter 10. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles underneath the seats around you. Uh, We will be covering verses 26 through 31 this morning. Our journey through Hebrews has now arrived at the fourth warning of the five warnings passages that we have in Hebrews. It's been about four chapters since we were in the last warning, which was the third warning. It'll be another two before we encounter the fifth and final warning. 
If you've ever wrestled with the question of whether or not deliberate sin is acceptable in the Christian life, this passage is for you. Or if you know of someone who believes that they can continue in sin, that they have a license to sin as a believer, then become familiar with this passage so you can not throw it at them, but walk with them through it. We will read the passage in its entirety, then we will break down the warning and consider what the author is getting at, followed by the reasoning the author uses to justify his warning. And of course, at the end, we will consider what should our response be? How do we effectively heed the author's warning? So at this time, let's go ahead and read our passage, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy or on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Our passage this morning begins with the conjunction for, which in this instance represents cause. In other words, what preceded our passage in verses 19 through 25 that we spoke of two weeks ago, we ought to do because of what is said in verses 26 through 31. So let us remind ourselves what was said previously. If you recall, the author reminded us about the confidence that we have to enter into the holy places. A confidence that is on the basis of the blood of our great priest who is over the house of God, Jesus Christ. Therefore, in light of that truth, we are to draw near to God with full assurance, and we are to hold fast to our confession of who Jesus is and what he has done without wavering. And in doing so, we are to consider one another, not neglecting to gather so that we may encourage one another as the day draws near. And there's a reason for all of that, and that's the warning of verses 26 through 31, which begins in verse 26 by identifying the very thing that we should not do in light of all of this, and that is to sin deliberately or defiantly. That is to, to sin knowingly, willfully against the will of God. In other words, if we don't draw near to God when we can, if we don't hold fast like we should, if we don't consider one another by not gathering together for the sake of encouragement, there is a consequence. For to willfully neglect those things, knowing the truth of the Son, who he is, what he has done, and what he has provided for us, if we neglect, as the author puts in Hebrews 2.3, such a great salvation, then only judgment remains. And no, the author is not speaking about a moment of neglect or a moment of weakness here and there. He's not even speaking of a, a season. 
what he's getting at is straight up willful refuser, refusal to do as the Lord commands and what would be expected in light of the truth of Christ. Certainly those who believe in Christ in this age will struggle with their sin. They will commit sins, but what they do with those sins, that matters. A believer, somebody who is not deliberately sinning, will confess. They will repent. And that can only happen when one draws near to God, right? We don't confess and repent to draw near to God. We draw near to God in order to confess and to repent. And we confess and repent because we hold fast to the confession of our hope. But a person who appears to be a member of the body of Christ, who sins and refuses to draw near to God, who refuses to confess and repent, despite knowing the truth of Christ, knowing the gospel, that person no longer has any means of forgiveness. So we need to wrestle with a question here before we go further. It's the same question that we wrestled with in regard to the other warnings, especially the last warning, the third warning in Hebrews uh, chapter 6. Um, and if you want a, a fuller answer to this question, I would direct you to the sermon that covers uh, Hebrews 6, 4 through 9. Uh, and the title of that sermon is Know the Danger. But in short, we'll, we'll try to answer this question. Is the author speaking of believers here? Well, he certainly is writing to believers. There's nothing in the letter to make us think that the author believes he's writing to non-believers or that he's writing to a mixed bag. He's writing to those who are believers. And when he speaks of receiving the knowledge of the truth, he is speaking of one who has been saved. In 1 Timothy 2, 3, 4, knowledge of truth is connected with salvation. Paul writes, this is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We also see this in Titus 1.1. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. So is the author saying here by this warning that it is possible for a believer to lose their salvation? Not explicitly. He's not. Though on its own, in a vacuum, it's not unreasonable to infer that's what it's saying because it sounds like it is possible. But we know from other texts of Scripture that it is impossible for one to lose their salvation once it has been granted. Once a person is born again, they do not revert back. Again, the sermon, uh, Know the Danger, will speak to, speaks to eternal security more fully. So if you're looking for a more full description of eternal security, I would point you back to that sermon. But in short, God does not grant something that has no end, that is eternal life, only for it to end later. If God has told you, I give you eternal life, an all-knowing, all-powerful God gives you, I give you life that has no end, only for that life to end, it makes God out to be a liar. So God does not grant eternal life in order, and only, only for that life to no longer be eternal. He does not do that. After all, all believers are sealed by the Spirit as a guarantee. Ephesians 1, 13, 14, Paul says in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, right? Romans 8. So what is going on here? What is the author getting at? Is it a loss of rewards? Well, none of the other warnings in the, chat, in the book of Hebrews speak about loss of rewards. They're all about not entering the kingdom, the promised eternal rest. 
and thus eternal judgment awaits those who do not heed the warnings, or simply put, do not persevere in the faith. And the pattern remains the same here for this fourth warning. The language used here is a, is a language of final judgment made by God at the end of days against those who have sins that have not been forgiven. Even the believer who may lose rewards is ultimately forgiven and has means of forgiveness. But in this warning, the person is not forgiven, for forgiveness cannot be found. So the question, the tension, it remains. If the author is speaking to those who are saved those who cannot lose their salvation, then why the warning? Why is he telling them, don't do this, because if you keep doing this, you will lose what you have? Well, to understand what is going on here, we need to remember what we, what we are reading. It is a warning. It is simply that, a warning. And warnings are used to keep people on the straight and narrow. They're not necessarily an assessment of the state of the people, the condition that they are in. And again, just as I did with Hebrews 6, I'll do it here as well. Think of Mark 13, especially verse 5, where Jesus, he says to them, saying to his disciples, see that no one leads you astray. And then multiple times throughout Mark 13, Jesus warns his disciples over and over and over again and warns us as well not to be led astray. Stay alert. Stay awake. Be mindful. But yet in Mark 13, 22, Jesus says it's not possible to lead the elect astray. Though many people, many false teachers, false Christs, will try to do that. So Jesus has just said, don't be led astray, but then he also says, it's not, it's, it's not possible. If it were possible, they would lead you astray, but it's not possible. And then in the very next verse, in 23, he warns them again, where he says, but be on guard. So he's warning them about something that for the elect is not going to happen, but yet he still warns them. So why does he even bother? If they can't be led astray, why warn them about being led astray? If the danger he speaks of is not possible to be suffered by the elect, then why does he warn them of it? Well, because the warnings are part of the means of which God ensures his elect are not led astray. It's how he keeps us on the straight and narrow. It's the same reason he gives us his word. It's the same reason he speaks to us. Even though it's all done in his power, it's one of the ordained ways, the ordained means, that we stay faithful, that we stay, that we persevere. And so it is here in Hebrews. The warning of judgment for willful sin is used to help God's people persevere. For those who believe, those who are sealed with the Spirit, they will persevere. And one of the, one of the means by which his people do so is by hearing and heeding these warnings that God gives us in his word. Now, we also need to acknowledge the reality, and, and as Jesus teaches, the tares among the wheat, the goats with the sheep. There are those of the church who we believe to be part of the church universal, who we believe to be saved, yet they are not. Right? John speaks of this in 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. Like They started with us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. In other words, they would have persevered in faith, but they went out. And they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, some of the tares, some of the goats will persist with us until the end of days. Right? Matthew 7, 21, right? Now, everyone who comes to me saying, Lord, Lord, will be saved, will enter into the kingdom. Some of the tares, some of the goats won't 
go out from us here in this age. It won't be until the end of the age when God sends his angels to separate the good fish from the bad fish, the goats from the sheep, the tares from the wheat. So does the warning here apply to them? Yes, it does, in part. But unless they are born again, they won't heed it, but they won't be without excuse either because here we are. So the elect, those of Christ, they will heed the warning that is before us. And we have seen people, I'm sure you know of people, who have left, over, left the church over this very matter, whether they've been honest about it or not. People that think that preaching on sin and holding people accountable to holiness, well, that's unnecessary. That's legalistic. It's unloving. Why, would, why can't we just focus on the character and nature of God and just marvel at him and we'll let the Spirit do the work? This is the Spirit doing the work. They want the Spirit until the Spirit does the work that God has ordained the Spirit to do the work by, through his word, through his local church. They think it's unnecessary, but again, right here in Hebrews, it says, if you willfully continue in sin, there's no forgiveness that remains for you. It would be a most cruel and unloving thing not to call out sin, not to call people to repentance, not to exhort the people of God to holiness and to persevere in such efforts, not only from the pulpit, but within the pews as well. You have that responsibility as well. But if it's not modeled for you from up here, then why would you do it? It's, we both are responsible for doing this, and we both should expect it from one another. Because if you go on sinning deliberately, the consequence is significant. This is not a, a, a mere, this is not shallow, this is not a, a petty thing. This is not a mere slap on the wrist. It's not a mere loss of rewards. So let us look at how the author speaks of the consequence of deliberate sin. End of verse 26, he says, beginning at the end of verse 26, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Well, first, there is no sacrifice that remains for sins. That is, there is no other gate to walk through. There is no other path to take that will lead to or provide the necessary forgiveness and purification for sin that is necessary. In other words, you've missed the train. The ship has sailed. Whatever effort you believe you can undertake, it will fail. Whether you go back to Mount Sinai, whether you go to Rome, or whether you go to some other means in the world. And you must not think that you can go back to Christ in deliberate sin, as if you can go to him and draw near to him with the intention of not repenting, without mourning over your sin. You can't go to him without a true desire to repent. He welcomes all, but if you go to him thinking that you can stay unholy, if you think you can go to him and have him and not repent, he won't have you. He will not advocate for those who are unwilling to confess and turn from this sin. The only thing that remains for such people is judgment. More specifically, in, in our passage, a fury of fire that will consume the enemies of God. This language of fire consuming the enemies, it comes from the Old Testament. You, it's, it's scattered throughout, but I'll give you two examples. One comes from the Song of Moses in Exodus 15, verse 7. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries, your enemies. You send out your fury, it consumes them like stubble. And then Isaiah 26, 11, O Yahweh, your hand is lifted up. 
but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire for your adversaries consume them. So to be an enemy, an adversary of God, is not to be his people. It is not to be part of the covenant. Those who are redeemed are not enemies to God. Yes, while we were enemies, he saved us. But once we, were sa- once we are saved, we are no longer enemies. We are no longer adversaries. So this fearful, of ex- uh, this fearful expectation of judgment is reserved for those who have ultimately rejected God as evidenced by their willful desire to continue to live lives of unholiness despite knowing the truth and at one point professing to believe it. And why is this so? Well, let's consider the author's reasoning. He begins in verse 28 by going to the Old Testament stating that anyone who set aside, who rejected, who ignored, who defied the law of Moses, that person was sentenced to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. I think of Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses. The one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. This setting aside the law of Moses, again, is not a mere violation of the law. It's a defiant, defiant, intentional, willful act to obey the law. It is an act of rebellion. It is a true act of treason. So the author begins with this example from the Old Testament. And if you've been paying attention in Hebrews, this is is the pattern, right? He pulls something from the Old Testament, but what he pulls from the Old Testament ultimately is the lesser thing. And so the thing that follows is the greater thing. And so the next thing that we should expect is the greater thing. And, And the author does that again here. So look at verse 29 especially with how the author starts it, starts it. We have verse 28, that if it's this way with the law of Moses, and remember, it's the law of Moses that his audience wants to go back to, right? So they're very familiar with it. If it's this way, the law of Moses, then verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the person who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenants, that's the new covenants, by which that person was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Now, this is strong language. I mean, this is not not soft language. This is strong language. Some people get upset when a pastor uses strong or even harsh language in the pulpit when it comes to sin or false teachings and the teachers. But you need to ask yourself, where does he get such language from? Strong language in preaching that is faithful needs to be used at times. Or it's not faithful preaching. And oftentimes, it's not that strong language appears out of nowhere. Because so, sometimes people are like, boy, you know, lately the sermons have been strong. Well, it's, it's coming from the same place. The, the strength has always been there, but sometimes we tend to only notice it when it applies to us. We don't mind it or perhaps even notice the, the harshness of it or the strength of the language when it doesn't cut our hearts, but when it cuts others... I mean, we only notice it when it cuts our hearts. When it cuts others, we don't notice it as much. We're like, yeah, that's right. That sounds good. But the minute it deals something in our own hearts or we become uncomfortable, then all of a sudden it's like, I don't like this. Maybe we shouldn't use strong language. I come to church to be comfortable. I don't come here to sweat in the pew. Well, sometimes you do. It just happens. And some will say, well, we're called to be gentle. 
We need to be gentle giants. But sometimes the most gentle a person can be is still very painful. If your femur were to be broken into two and needed to be set, what is more gentle? Not setting the bone because of the pain it will cause? Well, I don't want, I don't want to put the bone back in its place because it's, it's going to hurt a lot. Like if you, I mean, I doubt anyone has. But when you do this, one, it takes a lot of force, a lot of effort to actually pull that bone into place. And it's a lot of pain for the person to which it's happening to. And it's not easy for the person who's setting the bone, right? Because you see the person squirming in front of you. And you're, right? It's uncomfortable. But is it more gentle to avoid that situation altogether? Or is it more loving to actually do what is necessary to set the bone, regardless of how uncomfortable it is? And that's just a physical thing. What we're talking about here on Sunday mornings, or any other time when we're talking about matters of truth, it's far more consequential than your femur. It would be better for me to amputate your leg than to allow you to continue in your sin. As Adrian Rogers once said, better to speak the truth that hurts and then heals than a lie that comforts and then kills. We ought to wonder why we are okay with the Bible using strong language but not our pastors when the pastor is charged by God and not the people to deliver his word faithfully to his people. And as such, the pastor is not charged to make God's word palatable. He's not charged to dilute it by watering it down or to soften it to make it sting less. Rather, he's charged to deliver the message so it may be understood as God has revealed it to us. That includes ensuring that the sting of the slap, when it is presented in Scripture, that it is felt, as well as that the love of the same slap is known. So in this, though the language may be harsh, it may be strong, we need to see the value of it. We need to know and understand the love that's also being communicated in such language. And we must submit ourselves to the Spirit and not resist Him, and we must respond accordingly, no matter how painful, no matter how uncomfortable it might make us. The kingdom is not a place for snowflakes. The heat of God's light will melt away any pretense and will purify for himself a people who know and live lives of holiness. But again, strong language needs to be understood in order to be effectively applied. It's not merely enough to say we must understand what is being said. If you, if you have a broken femur and for some reason you don't know that your femur is broken and you don't know why I'm yanking on your leg, you're going to fight me. But if I explain to you, look, your femur is broken. You think it would be obvious, but for the sake of the illustration, just bear with me. Look, your femur is broken. If I explain it to you, show it to you, and explain to you how and why if we fix it, though as painful as it may be, it will lead to better things, you're going to be more willing to endure the pain. And thus it is for us this morning. So let us understand this harsh language that the author gives us by God's grace. Let's look at verse 29 closer. The author has stated that under the old covenant, under the earthly lesser covenants, death, right? Not just any death, physical death. Regular physical death was issued upon the witness of two earthly, fallible witnesses. Therefore, what punishment would be just for the one who has rejected has insulted, has offended, has mocked, has embarrassed, has humiliated, has trampled underfoot the Son. Right? Now, who is the Son? Remember, the, the author's been talking about the Son the whole time. He starts out the letter talking about the Son. doesn't name Jesus until the second chapter. It's all about the Son, the Son of God, the one who creates all things, who sustains all things. 
So how much worse punishment will remain for the one who, having received the knowledge of truth, but yet lived in such a way that they walk all over the Son of God, as if he wasn't there, as if he essentially doesn't exist, as if he does not matter. This trampling, this rebellion is also an act of mockery, or as one commentator put it, not only does such living signify a fall from grace, but it mocks the giver of grace. And then on top of that, to do so while living in deliberate sin. And, why, why, and they do that on top of that, while they are doing that, one profanes the blood of the covenant. They profane the blood of the new covenant. They make the shed blood of the Son not holy. Right? To profane something is to make it common, to make it ordinary. Now that blood is no longer special. It is now unspecial. The very blood that sanctified the person is no different than any other blood. But it doesn't stop there, does it? It could, but the author goes on. And he adds and has outraged the spirit of grace. So how many witnesses does that make? Son of God, the blood of the covenant, the spirit of grace. That's three witnesses, right? So in the old covenant, how many witnesses did you need for death? Two or three. Here we have three and consider who these witnesses are. First, we have the Son of God, Jesus, who knows all, who is perfectly holy and just, who is fully man, fully God, begotten of the Father, who is Lord and Savior. Right? He is Lord of all, Savior to some. Americans often have it backwards. They think he is Savior to all and Lord to some. He came to save all, yes, but not all will have him as their Savior. But all, regardless of how they feel about him, have him as Lord, now and then. They may not acknowledge it now, but one day all will. The second witness is the blood of the covenant. The testimony here is that the one who professed faith in Jesus did so, acknowledging that the blood of the Son is what has sanctified him. Yet he lives as one who has not been sanctified. He's essentially saying, God has made me holy, but by his actions he does not live holy. He does not live as somebody who is redeemed. He continues to identify with his sin, like everyone else. He or she engages in sexual immorality, embraces the sins of the world, drinks like a heathen, speaks like a pagan, orders a life as an atheist. That is, as one who does not know God. And thus this person has profaned the blood of God. The third witness is the Spirit. The Spirit of grace, which is obviously the Holy Spirit, who is also God and who has been sent by the Son from the Father. And so by outraging the Spirit of grace in this context, we have, in short, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is the unforgivable sin that Jesus mentions in Mark 3.29, Luke 12.10, and Matthew 12.31-32. However, the author, you'll notice, the author doesn't cite the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unforgivable sin explicitly in his text. He doesn't need to. He doesn't need the words of Jesus in this case. He has the Old Testament. That's where his argument comes from. It comes from the Old Covenant, of which his Jewish audience is attempting to go back to. And which in doing so, when you turn your back on the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ to other means for sanctification, for other means of salvation, as his audience is trying to do, trying to go back to Sinai, they commit the sins of verse 29. The author's argument pits the two or three earthly witnesses under the earthly old covenant against the three heavenly, eternal witnesses of the new covenant. 
So if the first required physical death, then what do you think the second will require? How much worse of a punishment? And the author doesn't stop there. He goes on. You would think it would be enough, but he continues to repeat his point because sinful people tend to be dull of hearing. And he wants with love and patience to leave no doubt that there is too, because there is too much at stake. And the path that lies ahead for believers in Christ, it is a treacherous one. Because this world and all that's in it, to include your flesh, would have you do otherwise, would have you go astray. So we must know who we are, and we must know and understand our convictions. Because when the heat comes, when the pain comes, you need to know why. You need to understand why it's important to persevere. So in verse 30, the author quotes the Old Testament twice. Verse 1, vengeance is mine. I will repay. God is just. You transgress him. You mock him. You insult him and ignore the means of forgiveness that he has offered us. Well, vengeance is his. He will repay. This comes from Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Paul cites it himself in Romans 12, 19. And then again, the author pulls again from the Old Testament, same chapter, very next verse, verse 36, say the Lord will judge his people. The Lord will have a purified bride. He will not have those who desire to sin more than they desire holiness. And again, the author is not accusing his audience here of falling away from the faith. He is giving them a warning. But for those who do live this way, I think they can end up living unholy lives willfully in spite of their knowledge of Christ. Well, the only, thing, the only one thing remains, fearful expectation of judgment. And they have only appeared to be members of the new covenant, but yet never were. After making his case, the author sums it up in verse 31. He says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You need to ask yourself, do you know who will judge you one day? It's not the people in your lives. It's not society. It's not the justice system of this earth or whatever order you grew up in. It's not your good friends. It won't be your parents. It won't be your siblings. It won't be anyone. It won't be the people that you cared for, that you were nice to. They're not judging you. God judges. The living God. right? The, the God who sees and knows all. The God who knows the hearts of men. But yet, by his grace right now, is allowing us to live. right? Psalm 46. He is the creator of all things. All things. He is the one without cause who causes all things and sustains all things. He's not a, a God who has merely began a process of creation where he created the laws of physics and, and the laws of nature and spun the will and was like, there it goes. It's on its own. No, he creates all things and then he sustains all things. He is intimately involved with creation. Your heart is beating by the word of God. Not because of your physiology. God can cause that heart to stop just like that. He can cause the aneurysm in your head to explode, whatever it may be. He can cause any mode of death he wants at any moment. He can cause all of this to just cease existing. He created it from nothing. He can make it nothing. 
but he sustains it all. This is your judge. He's not a distant, careless God. He's a living God. He's the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the one who knows eternity, the one who has ordained the beginning and the end. Now, now ponder that. He has ordained eternity. He knows eternity. Ten millennia from now, in eternity, he knows what you will be doing. He knows how you're going to be feeling. He knows how he's going to be glorified and known. Ten millennia beyond that, he knows that. He knows the moment that we're in right now. He knows everything about you right now, but he also knows who you are 20 millennia from now, 100 millennia now. I mean, ponder eternity. There is no end to it. And he knows all of it. He, he knows the thing that has no end because he himself has no end and has no beginning. Now, be careful. You ponder this for too long, you might get lost. All right, so stay, stay grounded. We must not cross that, that creature and creator distinction that's there perhaps for our own well-being, because if we think that we can cross that barrier and start thinking like the creator, we will essentially start changing who the creator actually is and how he has revealed himself to be. It is a good thing to ponder these deep things of God, but if we're not careful, we can lose our minds over it. But this is the God who will judge everyone in here. He is the one who cannot and never will be fully comprehended. I mean, think about that. We'll have all eternity to know God because knowing God glorifies God. To know him and to enjoy him, it's why we were created. And we will have all eternity. We'll have an unending existence and we'll never fully comprehend the depths of God. I mean, that's just mind-boggling because we're finite creatures. We can't comprehend that. But he is the one whom you have transgressed and sinned against, and he is the one who will judge you. Though he is the one who cannot be fully comprehended, and though he is the eternal being of all things, by his grace he has transcended. He has condescended to us. Not out of obligation. There's nothing in God's nature that obligates him to reveal himself to us. But he has done so out of love to allow us to know him in part. Therefore, we who have received the knowledge of truth, the knowledge of Christ, let us not offend him by mocking him in how we live. As if we can get away with it. As if he will just look the other way. As if he'll not notice. As if he hasn't spoken to us. Like that's the thing. It'd be one thing if God did not give us his word, never sent his son, didn't send his spirit to convict sin. But the fact that he has, and yet we continue in sin willfully, deliberately, what makes you think you're going to go into the promised rest? What makes you think he'll welcome you into the kingdom? So let us do what we can to live faithfully, to persevere, let us do what we can to bring that truth, of the truth of our, hope, our, our confession of hope that we have, the truth of Jesus Christ, to others who do deliberately sin, either in ignorance or arrogance, so that they may no longer remain as enemies to the Almighty. And in doing so, in a petty, fickle, faithless generation, let us not be afraid in love, 
to use strong or even harsh language at times. The bone needs to be set, and it can be painful. But let them know what's going on before you try to set the bone. Help them understand as much as possible. So what is our response to all of this? Besides fear, trembling, contrition, which is, by the way, an appropriate response, right? Jim Snyder last week used Isaiah 66 too. It's a good verse. God says all these things my hand has made, right? So he's, God appeals to the fact, I am creator. And so all these things came to be, declares Yahweh. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite, that is broken in their spirit, broken um, over their sin, broken over the, 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 the fallen condition of the world, and trembles at my word. And then, of course, Philippians 2, 12, 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We don't need to water down what fear and trembling is. Oftentimes, people preach on this and go, well, it doesn't mean that you're, you're really fearful of God. No, that's exactly what Paul is saying. What do you think fear and trembling is? It's, it's, just, it's the straight reading of the text. But we also can't forget verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, if you're a believer and you're trying to sin, God's going to correct you. He's going to discipline you, and we'll get to discipline later in Hebrews. So let us be okay with feeling fear in the face of the Almighty and his holiness. It's okay to be fearful of who he is. Let us be okay with feeling shame over our sin and apathy. There's a lot of talk in the church, we should never feel shame. Well, how do you feel, when do you know when sin's bad for you? You feel shameful over it. It's like if you eat too much sugar, if you have that chocolate cake and you eat all of it and your stomach feels bad, it's like your body telling you, you had too much sugar. If that never happened, you would just keep eating the cake. I know I would. I mean, even now I sometimes struggle with it. Sometimes the pain isn't enough. Shame has its purpose in Scripture. God wants us to feel shame over our sin. It's what we do with that shame that matters. Let us be okay confessing our incompetence and our lack of faith. These things are needed for a right response in all of this. For what we need to do, the author has already told us, right? Verses 19 through 25, he's already told us. We need to draw near to God. To be given grace, to be given faith, to be given new dignity in spite of the shame that we feel because of our sin. To know forgiveness, to know having no shame, to know love, to know holiness, to know him, to know the living God, we must draw near to him. Your shame will remain on you unless you draw near to him. So let that shame move you to him. Let that shame cause you to cry out like the blind men, saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. I can't see you. I don't know where you are, but I hear you walking by. Have mercy on me. I want to see. I want your grace. I need it removed, and only you can do it. Be like the psalmist, like David, Psalm 34, verses 8 and 9. Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear Yahweh, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. And we draw near by holding fast to the confession of our hope that Jesus Christ died for our sins, 
the once for all, all sufficient sacrifice in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, raised on the third day. He has ascended in exaltation to the right hand of God most high as our great high priest. We must hold fast to this. Otherwise, if we don't, we will profane the blood of the Son. We will mock Christ by how we live. We will outrage the spirits when we turn to other ways, other means, or when we compromise the truth of Christ by allowing other false faiths in God's space in our lives. And of course, we need to consider one another. We need to encourage one another to love and good works. In other words, we need to encourage one another unto holiness by gathering regularly and all the more so that people may know how we live, so that they may know who we are, so that we may be held accountable in love for holiness, for perseverance. So let us then heed the warning of God here in Hebrews 10, 26, 31. Let us not throw away our confidence in Christ, which we'll get to next week as well. And let us, with all that is within us, that is the spirit that dwells within us, that is the all that we do this in, let us strive to enter the eternal rest that God has promised to those who are faithful to endure to the very, very end. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy, your grace. Thank you for your words this morning. You know our hearts. You know our sensitivities. Father, I ask that you would help us to take what you have said this morning, that your spirit would convict us as needed, that it would point us to where we need to go, and in doing so, Father, that we would be encouraged. We may have sinned, we may have transgressed, we may have been ignorant or arrogant, we may have lived as fools, but Father, this moment right here, now, you give us by your grace to confess our sin, to seek the forgiveness that has been offered by your Son, offered by you through your Son, by his blood, and that we can find the means of repentance, that we can find the means to live holy lives as you call us to live. So, Father, I ask that your Spirit would do that, especially for those who are perhaps limping or, or those who are struggling to walk faithfully. They, they have questions, they have doubts, either about you, they have doubts about the ways of the world, there are pressures in this life that are causing us to wonder why? What is all this for? May we continue to ponder the deep things of you. May we continue to marvel at creation. May we be intentional in doing so. May we continue to go to your word. May you draw us near when we are weak, when we are, are failing in doing so. May your spirit pull us to you, Father. Keep us close when we wander away or try to wander away, discipline us as necessary so that we may know you all the more and we can glorify you all the more. Help us to drink from no other cistern or well, but may we drink from the living well that you have given us, Father. May we walk with one another in grace and love and mercy and truth. May we be willing to confront one another as necessary, not to bring down, but to build up to correct, to help one another out. May we be open to receiving the same correction. 
May we do so with all gentleness, all patience. And may we do so faithfully. Father, we ask that you would bless the table before us, the bread and the cup, that they would encourage us this morning, that uh, we would confess our sins and, and we would confess them in, in knowing that you're faithful and just to forgive them, that it is finished upon the cross, that we can come up here knowing that in spite of who we are, you have loved us, you continue to pour your grace out upon us, you continue to be patient towards us, we get to come up and enjoy the table that your son has prepared for us by his blood. Help us to look back at the cross so that we can look forward to the day when your son will return, knowing that he will judge all, the righteous and the unrighteous. But may we leave here fully knowing that our confidence is not in us, it is in Jesus. All we have is him. So help us to walk day by day by his grace, in his grace, for your glory. We ask these things, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, and by the blood and the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So at this time, we'll go into communion if you are a believer.